Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. Hello, everybody. Hello, Lisa. Hey, Josh. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone's having a great evening. Absolutely. It's Wednesday night again. And uh, we just keep coming up with fun stuff to talk about. Tonight, it is Vampires and the Ozarks. Maybe not two things people put together very often, but uh... so, uh, we'll uh, dig into this whole process. It is there's actually a lot of material that we have, and and uh, we do encourage people if uh, there's an additional information that you have to share, please feel free to uh, to direct message, uh, uh, personal message, Dark Ozarks, uh, as well as if it's something that you feel comfortable sharing uh, more publicly, uh, just write in the comments below. Exactly. Uh, that's part of this process is, is uh, building stories, building uh, a compendium of lore. So um, it's your chance to get involved. And, and boy, howdy, there is actually a lot of lore uh, associated with all of this. And it's, it's uh, both uh, historically and, uh, and in contemporary settings as well, something that uh, can be certainly was surprising to me when we first started digging into this information. Same here. I guess before we uh, really get uh, headlong into the uh, topic, we ought to stop and say uh, shout out to our sponsor, Always Buying Books, who sponsors yes. the uh, video cast as well as the podcast, which uh, you can also catch on uh, Branson Podcast Network. Uh, we are very pleased to. Um, I'd be affiliated with them just over yeah. a week now and things are going well and numbers are climbing so uh excited about that uh always buying books in joppa missouri uh is just it, it's a phenomenal bookstore i'm not just saying it because they sponsor us but uh, uh i've been a patron for years anyway and uh uh just a great inventory, everything from general reading to um, really hard to find, not very high-end uh, items and hard to find unusual nonfiction, everything, everything that a book reader can drill over. So <laughs> and Bocanalists do a great job. So they, they really do. It's the, the curation process is a huge chunk of the battle having, you know, I, I'm always looking through uh, book selections anywhere I am. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of times it's, you know, <laughs> where you can, you can, you can typically tell pretty quickly if, uh, you know, how much of a curation process there is and yeah. uh, their, their process is phenomenal. Uh, there's, they have a ton of titles right now that I would love to buy. I'm, I'm, um, pacing myself within this process and then uh, you know <laughs> in terms of uh, of non-curated sources I, I you know a number of times in other locations see a stack of books and be like oh this looks like it's going to be really good and it's like 1980s um, how to cook low fat <laughs> with your microwave and uh those are just 
depressing to say the least yeah so you know <laughs> zip up your windsuit and uh run not walk to a much better curation of books there you go <laughs> very well put they are on uh, north main street in joplin missouri if you can get in there uh in person that's wonderful if not find them online at their website alwaysbuyingbooks.com as well as on Facebook, Always Buying Books, and their affiliated uh, group, Friends Who Like uh, Always Buying Books. They put a lot of inventory up there. You can buy it. Um, and if you're not local, they can mail it to you, or you can call them and see if they have something that you are looking. Maybe they have what you've been looking for forever. So uh, very, check it very out. Possible. Very possible. So yeah. Um, great, great sponsor. Love to be affiliated with them. And um, we have events coming up. We have quite a, quite a few events. Fall is hitting fast and furious. Yes. <laughs> I I have my uh, uh, my my uh, uh, pumpkin pumpkin mug out already. <laughs> no pumpkin spice joke, huh? Uh, fortunately, no. Uh, black yes. and coffee. Uh, not a not a pumpkin spice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll jump on on one side as opposed to the other of this bandwagon. I'm not a pumpkin spice kind of girl. Me either. <laughs> and <laughs> so, in uh, uh, first off on the uh, the calendar is state of the ozarks fest dark ozarks will be there as well as obviously state of the ozarks at state of the ozarks fest saturday september 17th in downtown hollister missouri yes and it's uh, it's gonna be a good event i mean it you know uh josh has a hard time patting himself on the back of uh, doing this but you know uh, you put on a wonderful event i've been there every year grows every have. year um i'm beginning to wonder you know when it's going to overflow uh, <laughs> we'll just we'll just take over more parts of the town exactly um but it's it's rather unique for a small town festival because of the variety of things that go on um there's a lot of different kinds of entertainment uh you know music um uh trade you know uh, artisans uh doing demonstrations, there's uh, Civil War reenactors, there's medieval combat, there's good food, um, and just various things that um, you don't usually see in all in one spot. So, you know, hands off, you do a great job, Josh. Thank you. It's, uh, it really, I, I really enjoy um, curating an event that brings very diverse uh, elements of the Ozarks together in one place. And it's, uh, it really is a, uh, the outcome of my, my day job as editor-in-chief. I, for stories, I'm always looking for very interesting, uh, unique groups of people doing interesting, unique things. And, but for a variety of reasons, often just in terms of time economy, uh, those groups rarely have the opportunity to interact with one another. True, and and this is an opportunity for that to happen, and it does. 
Yes, yes, always, always an enormous amount of fun. So uh, make your plans to see us there. Uh, the State of the Ozarks and Dark Ozarks booths will be combined, I do believe, uh, will be centrally located on the street in front of the Old English Inn, and which is definitely an iconic landmark um, space. And then uh, we'll have books. Yes, we will have books. We've actually got to order books, which is amazing. We... <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it really is. I'm very excited about that. For people that don't know, uh, we have books, uh, books yes. that we've written. I mean, we have a lot of books that we haven't written, but we also have books that we have. Exactly. So come check them out. And then the following week on the 24th of September, we will be in Caney, Kansas, actually in the little Ozarks of Kansas, it's called, and for the Bordertown Paracon, where we'll both be presenting uh, on various topics. And um, uh, it's put on by SEK, Bordertown Paranormal, which is uh, a wonderful group, and it's a, it's a really good event I've presented before. Um, and we've worked with them um, and uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, so check it out, it's a free event. Go to the SEK Bordertown Paranormal page on Facebook and uh, find out details or um, we'll post again, but we have it on our page as well. Uh, and then we'll be back in Hollister on October 7th. Yes, in conjunction with the uh, State of the Ozarks hosted, first Friday art walk of October. Uh, we will be bringing the, uh, the haunted uh, historic walking tour back to Hollister, uh, including a tour of the Old English Inn, which is quite haunted. Yes, and, and it's something that we've done over the years, um, and then we haven't over the last couple of years between various things, including a certain, you know, national event that kind of threw things off but um yeah. so glad to get back there tickets are available at paranormalsciencelab.com uh tickets are, are already selling through so uh grab yours so space doesn't uh, run out yes and, and uh-huh oh as i say it's uh it's going to be a great opportunity uh, a lot of history uh folklore uh mm -hmm. storytelling and um uh, cosplay yeah it's a neat neat combination excited about excited about that night and and uh you know we'll be walking by some great art on the sidewalk of exactly. downtown Hollister as well and then um the 15th uh sorry the 15th of october we will be in joplin for dark ozards october country at the vfw post 534 um yes. and uh all day event where we cover uh, all kinds of topics uh from dark history to the paranormal and explain uh, mysteries cryptids etc and uh the public gets involved is we were not we're not just being talking heads um uh, lecturing and uh, everyone gets involved it's a fun event when we do these kind of events they're some of my favorite um and there's going to be a lot going on so get your tickets again at paranormalsciencelab.com and uh, we will see you there and we thank always buying books for sponsoring that event yes we do then <laughs> uh on october 20th 
uh, Dark Ozarks will be back in Joplin for uh, the walking tours. Yes, the uh, Old Joplin Downtown Walking Tour, um, which will be in conjunction with Third Thursday Art Walk in Joplin. Um, and we're partnering with uh, Joplin Downtown Alliance for that. Uh, proceeds will help benefit the Alliance, which they do a lot of good work with, uh, supporting the arts, art, local artisans, uh, as well as playing on the Art Walk. Um, and um, being uh, a principal in uh, various projects, restoring historic buildings, etc. So they do a lot of good things. So uh, come out and hear uh, some of the dark history and ghost stories of downtown Joplin. Yes. Uh, tickets are on sale at paranormalsciencelab.com. Then and the 29th, <laughs> October 29th, uh, we will be back at the Ritchie Mansion and uh, in Newtonia, Missouri one day after the uh, the anniversary of the second battle of newtonia uh, for folks who don't know the ritchie mansion and the city of newtonia uh were were a, a very big part of missouri's civil war history really was and then there's a civil war cemetery there as well which uh, you'll be able to tour as well and uh, there's going to be food and refreshments and all kinds of things going on so um um, again, tickets are selling pretty steadily, and so you may want to get your tickets now to ensure you have space, uh, paranormalsciencelab.com for that. And then um, on November 19th, we have two events. Um, we will be uh, at Always Buying Boots in the afternoon for a boot signing. Yes. Proving that we actually have boots that we wrote. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> So come out and talk to us. Uh, and then that night, we will be at the Web City Public Library for a his haunted history tour and paranormal investigation. Yes. So, um, and it is a very haunted uh, uh, site with decades of poltergeist activity, uh, full body apparitions, etc. cetera, that um, uh, we've had... Uh, quite a bit happened on tours in the past. So it's it's always a good event. So get your tickets at paranormalsciencelab.com. Very excited. And that is a full autumn season of, uh, of hauntings. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we may not get much sleep. Uh, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be really good. Now- We can sleep in winter. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, on to our, on to our topic, um, vampires and the Ozarks. Where do you want to start? Oh, well, I, I think it's, let's, let's do the same thing we did on YouTube. Let's kick this off a little bit with what is a vampire, pop culture versus folklore. Okay. Well, I guess if we start with, with pop culture i think that that's where people are, are starting from that that's where people's assumptions are because we are inundated with the motif we um, are these days it's everything from twilight to various um tv shows and books about vampires that really paint um the motif as 
not necessarily a monster or cautionary tale, but as a romance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, Which was uh, a new twist in, 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 in the very long saga of vampirism. <laughs> and and, and I, I think that it, it, it bears important discussion in terms of the pop culture psyche because all of this also directly impacts how we perceive not only the word, but also the contemporary and past lore that yeah. we will be getting into in the, in the Ozarks. Um, there is, and, and to, to some degree, I, I think that certainly since, mm, certainly since Bram Stoker and Coleridge with uh, Christabel, yeah. that there, there has been certainly within the, the Victorian and, and Romantic era, pre, pre-Victorian Romantic era uh, of art, that the idea of the vampire uh, has existed as a uh, as, as a metaphor for uh, various forms of eroticism. Yes, um, and really, that's the time that that's really the beginnings of of this um, the change uh, from being very much a monster to playing with the idea of eroticism and sexuality. Um, yes, and in the Victorian age, particularly in, in Stoker certainly uh played on it you know that uh that delicate line between taboo and preoccupation um again modern audiences often think that the victorians were were very prudish very uptight and etc which really was not the case uh, no. uh actually preoccupied with uh <laughs> a lot more than we think about and, and there have been you know vampiric um uh operas etc going on in europe for a couple hundred years uh that really was not in quote mainstream um consciousness um and so you have a direct line from that victorian gothic uh playing with uh forbidden sin to then Anne Rice, um, who again plays on those topics, but she also delves into sort of the the psyche of of the vampire, and I think that's what kind of defines her works is that you, you're talking about what you know what is the psyche of the creature itself, and. Yes the notions of, of good and bad um, and then um, and perhaps and and I, lo- I love interview with the vampire uh, and all, all of the uh, her books um, which I've read and seen the movie a number of times etc but perhaps um, this jump people often say how did we jump from that to twilight which of course was written as fan fiction originally, but 
when uh, when you think about it, Anne Rice wrote the you know, Vampire Lestat, in which a bored, you know, six hundred year old vampire decides to turn himself into a rock star. Yes, um, and um, so per- perhaps Anne started that leap. <laughs> <laughs> to glitter i don't know <laughs> i think it's i think it is uh, i think it's fair to say that that trajectory certainly the potential for that trajectory was created um what i find what i find uh, interesting out of, a, out of a couple of elements of that is, is first of all uh vampires are i would say easily the most well-known for folkloric horror creature uh yeah that we're we're discussing, uh, that we have discussed, and second is that the uh, the mm, the the vampire of Western culture uh, of or European and uh, United States North American culture is in terms of its sensibility uh the uh mm, the the gentility the forbidden allure uh, these are are traits that are not part of vampiric creatures and black witches of native american tradition that's true um and more ancient European tradition as well. Um, yes, uh, that the, we're, we're dealing with, uh, if we go over to more ancient tradition, or if we switch over to, for example, um, things like raven mockers in Cherokee lore, uh, these, are, the, these are not alluring creatures. <laughs> they are quite terrifying and oftentimes very disgusting. Working on it, Josh. Okay.
Okay, we'll try this again. Oh, <laughs> uh, phase two. I don't know. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> so we're okay. So where were we <laughs> before we were uh, interrupted? <laughs> um. Oh, uh, pop culture implications, sort of the, 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 the unconscious psychological baggage and yes. the allure and, and rice. We're concluding yes. with and rice. Well, in, in the ancient, uh, the more ancient views and, and so on and so forth, um, I think that, um, you know, and one thing that I've kind of mulled over is I wonder is if, if this, this current um, fascination with vampires and making it a very romantic kind of notion um, comes out of our fear or idea that all our monsters have gone away. They yes. really aren't monsters anymore. That, and it is a way, it is a way of exploring and it is a, certainly a way of exploring uh, taboos in a metaphorical sense. Yes. And, but I think as a consequence of what's happening is that the initial original idea of making a cautionary tale um, is lost. Yes. Yes. For, for by and large, there's not a huge downside to a lot of these newer stories. True, the uh, the angst of being the undead is a lot less angsty than it used to be. <laughs> the undead is just fifteen year old. <laughs> <laughs> we. We've, we've swerved violently into teenage poetry at this point. Um, <laughs> Not, so, again. Not again. <laughs> it, it is fun to think about. Um, well, I, I think that mm, the, the, the thing that, while still very alluring, the thing that makes Anne Rice's work, particularly with Lestat, interesting is the, the depth of gravitas, the sense of, of suffering that is associated with being a vampire. And then so that there is a, a yin and yang, there is the, the benefit of, of, the, of being a vampire, but then there's also the, the, the devastation, the emotional devastation or the spiritual devastation, the angst, the real angst that is associated with that. I, I yeah. think that as, as succeeding layers of fan fiction have been built upon that and then translated through popular culture, uh, the gravitas of, of being the undead has been mostly sanded down. And so you're, you're left with the, uh, you're, you're left with the glitter. Sparkly. Um... Here, here's one thought that as, as, as 
as we've explored this sort of individualism almost uh, of vampires and this introspection, they've suddenly, I think over time became less the other as well. This is true. And we can identify with them, what they're yes. doing. And, and there is a bit of a, just from a literary sense, speaking as a, as a, as a fiction writer as well, there's a little bit of a danger. You, you familiarize yourself into the other enough, uh, there, there isn't much to be forbidden. It becomes rather mundane. Exactly. Um, you know, because, and, and I do think, and, and Rice did that very well because you, you could empathize with her monsters. Um, and then it's just kind of progressed on but it's this this notion is so divorced from past notions that you don't even recognize it as the same thing and for those who are wondering why are we talking about this and what does this have to do with the ozarks stay tuned <laughs> exactly there is a there is a phrase a term uh word that you use that i think is very powerful um, it's a, it's a word that we tend to steer away from, uh, mm -hmm. a lot. And it is the word monster. Uh, I'm going to go back, go back to, uh, Rice's work for just a moment. And something that she's been very consistent about was very consistent about is that as lovable as her, her characters were, they were monstrous. Yes. Yes. And perhaps that's, you know, that, that, that is a, a lesson in human behavior as well is that the monster can be very charismatic uh, but in the end it's still just as dangerous and i am and, and we are leading the point um not just fiction but uh it's something that i think is in in, in many terms we're in danger of losing in the narrative is the the monstrous nature because we're we're so ready um so so very ready to jump to the idea that everything and everyone must be understood right that and, and of course there are many social benefits to keeping an open mind but one of the things that that does is it um from a i think a very uh, a point, a place of naivete drains out the potential of monstrousness within human beings, which we see on a regular basis. Yes, and, and even with some of the stories that are tied to this and those arts. Yes, which I think would be a very interesting place to jump in, actually, right off the bat of the okay. right off the top of the list, vampirism in Missouri, the November 23rd, 2016 Springfield, Missouri stabbing case. Yes. Um, the, and, and this is something that is pretty well um, twofold for me. It, it, it's emblemic of the current fictional status of pop culture vampires and yes. then also something that uh, some people may not be as familiar with but uh particularly about the 1990s and early 2000s vampire culture um across 
the United States. Um, people may be rather surprised that there were a number of uh, covens, cults, whatever you'd want to say, that practiced some form of blood sharing and yeah. um, vampirism uh, with very stylized uh, lifestyles, etc., and some with rituals, etc. Um, and that seemed to kind of die down a little bit, but this incident just kind of jumps out of both of those two factors, it seems. <laughs> it does, it does. And, uh, and I think really showcases uh, that culture going off the rails. Yes. Um... I mean, and certainly there, there's a number of, of different lifestyles and different, um, let's just say, fetishes uh, that happen um, that it's like, okay, whatever, that's what someone's interested in. But vamp vampirism is something that can go exceedingly wrong and spiral out of control. Uh, yes. I mean, now, in this, and interestingly enough, this is a Springfield, Missouri case. Do mm -hmm. you do you want to detail uh, what actually took place? Oh, I mean, we can a little bit. We don't have to mention names or anything. I mean, it's it, it was public uh, information, but um, basically, a couple experimenting. Yes, uh, a, a young woman, actually a nineteen-year-old at the time. Um, allowing her boyfriend to cut her arm and drink her blood. There was an argument ensued, this uh, transition to slapping, this transition to yelling, and then uh, the girl stabbed her boyfriend multiple times, including in the lung. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then uh, used his blood to write a heart and I love you on the wall and then ultimately called 911. And in in that scene, it just kind of takes a lot of those elements out of everything we just talked about from some of the fictional current fictional trends. Um, it does. It does. Full of, full of contradictions, let's just say. <laughs> it, it is. And it's it's obviously it's not something that would be funny if you were there. And certainly not funny if you walked in on that scene. Um, yeah. the, uh, uh, the, the man uh, who was wounded uh, insisted throughout the entire process that his wounds were self-inflicted. And uh, the 19-year-old the was charged with first-degree domestic assault and armed criminal actions. Mm -hmm. So Twilight very much gone wrong in this particular yes. case. Yes. And... But it also points out something, and I think this is probably the, the next point to, to jump into. Uh, well, let me, let me just kick off with this quote I, I found really interesting uh, at the time. Let me see here. Let me page this over. This is a long way from the stakini. Um, that... Uh, uh, actually, from a from a uh, 
first historian in Cosmopolitan saying mm -hmm. that uh, public fascination, this pretty much mm, just repeats what you already said, um, but public fascination with vampires is nothing new, but in the 1990s, vampires enjoyed a revival spurred in part by the success of Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992 and Interview with a Vampire in 1994. By the time Jennifer Wolfe examined the vampire subculture in New York City, vampirism could be found in cities across the country. Cosplay, sex, blood drinking, and occasionally deeds far darker well, our, were all part of Cosmo's investigation of the eerie erotic world of real life vampires. So I, I think, first of all, I think it's, it is very interesting. There are, there is a subculture of quote unquote real life vampires, individuals who engage in uh, ritualistic fetish and role play of inspired by uh, pop culture and sometimes more ritualistic lore associated with vampires. And so there, there, I think that, that it's fair to say that within this culture, there is a, a gradient or a gamut ranging um, from cosplay, which mm -hmm. is, is I, I don't cosplay as a vampire, but I do cosplay, mm -hmm. uh, all the way to uh, some really dark uh, ritualistic practices. Yes, and, and, and in fact, in the 90s, there, there, was, a, there was a journalist who was, um, and I, her name escapes me uh, at the moment, she was investigating uh, the vampire culture in New York City, and she disappeared, and they mm. never found her, um, as, as far as I ever knew. Um, so it could, it could get very dangerous, and what um, actually a lot of people may be surprised that um, there were several sort of centers of this culture, New York City being one, New Orleans being another, and surprisingly, for a lot of people, Springfield, Missouri being, being one. Yes, and I think that would be a really interesting place to, to go to next. Uh, local, uh, particularly local Southwest Missourians, who have an interest in the, the esoteric and the visceral are already familiar with the vampire tunnels, quote unquote, yeah. of Springfield, Missouri. And, and I will say that that actually, you know, that that, uh, that uh, lore, that, that culture group predates the 1990s in Springfield. Um, uh, I know it, it was, going strong in the in the 1980s and, and actually there are some stories of, of vampire culture uh, in Springfield going back to the 1890s. Interesting. I want, you know, to, I want uh, to dig into that. There was a there was a reference in our in our notes um, that I, I found I found just interesting in its yin-yang qualities. Uh, this was from a, a, a 2005 Springfield uh, News Leader article uh, about the Springfield tunnels. And there's some very interesting details in that. But there, there was a quote. Um, this is, was, I, I take that back, 2014. Uh, but the quote from this uh, 2014 article 
says, if you believe a 2007 news leader story, which I don't, there was a group of young vampires hanging out of these catacombs under the Queen City back then. And uh, the Springfield Tunnels article, which is online, takes a very tongue-in-cheek approach mm -hmm. to uh, really every aspect of the Springfield Tunnels. And, and you know, that that's one, and, and this is something I wanted to talk about specifically because, uh, and we've seen this with different stories, whether real or urban legend in the Ozarks of, of uh, certain stories uh, real events or real phenomena kind of being lost and people starting to think that it was made up just like this. We've seen that yes. with like, we've seen that actually with Billy Cook, that Billy Cook really did not exist. He was not a serial killer. He, it was just a story. Um, uh, and the thing of it is, is from, you know, I've had contact, lived in Springfield off and on for years and the vamp the tunnels and the vampire culture was well known when i was in college um and it continued um when i practiced law there if you know things came up um i i know from people younger than me who had personal experiences uh exploring the tunnels um yes. In, in the early, you know, 2010s. Um, so this is something that, you know, has gone on for decades. And I find it ironic in 2014, oh, we don't believe this was happening in 20, you know, 2007. And I, I know personal accounts that, yes, it was. Yes. Um, in, in fact, in fact, people exploring and trying to document it and being chased, um, <laughs> stumbling upon uh, ritualistic uh, gatherings and um and then of course um uh to say that you know it, nothing ever happened it kind of divorces itself entirely then from the very real events of the cheryl feeney murder case it does and i i i do find this particularly interesting i'm going to just addendum on this and then we'll move on to the Feeney case that in so many cases particularly in the in the Green County Springfield area uh, we're we're oftentimes asked to talk about uh, urban legends the albino farm being the most prominent and in a situation in which we we are consistently having to burst people's bubble and say guys it's an urban legend it yeah it, it really, we don't have the kind of, uh, of um, you know, detail that it, it's not there. It is, it is something that folks made up, but thanks for, thanks for asking, thanks for playing. Uh, the vampire culture of Springfield, as you have just detailed, is something that on the surface, uh, instead of having urban, an urban legend, certainly there is, there is what I would classify as chatter. Mm -hmm. Uh, about it and chatter making its way onto message boards and, and a variety of small articles. But the, the larger narrative is to, I, I feel, is to, to really uh, mirror what was in this 2014 Newsleader article, 
which is very bland, really. It is saying, oh, we have an infrastructure of, uh, of storm drains. And they're basically saying there's nothing to see here. Move along, folks. There's, there's no lore. There's no legend. There's no history. Uh, perhaps there were some vagrants, some homeless people who lived down there. And perhaps someone uh, mistook something for something else. And it's, it's time to move on from this. There's nothing here to see. We have data, a lot of data, uh, that says something very different. Yes. Um, um, and yeah, I, I do find that interesting that sometimes, you know, where, there is, where there's fire, you know, people say, oh, that's an urban legend. And where there's nothing, they think it's true. Um, and, and the uh, albino farm versus this is a good example. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, um, there seems to be a, um, a uh, ongoing thread that comes up whenever we talk about underground spaces, that yeah. people have a hard time believing that there are these underground spaces. Um, we just had the post on the page about tunnels under Joplin, and we, we've already had comments about, really, there were tunnels, you know? Um, which, I mean, it's very, very well documented. And uh, for some reason, there's this disconnect. And, and yes, the, the tunnels now are, are quote, storm, shell, uh, storm runoff uh, tunnels, but they originally were Jordan Creek. Um, yes. Most of it has been covered over with asphalt and concrete. And yeah. um, there are lots of places to, to hide and gather, uh, particularly if you don't want to be seen, uh, as long as you're not in the middle of a rainstorm. <laughs> and uh, I think that um, that's what people, again, don't want to, uh, don't want to don't want to think about that there that that there could be something really dark. It goes back to is there really a monster? And if the monster's human, that's even worse. That you know, because it might be it might be us in a situation. You know, um, and so you play into oh it has to just be nothing. Um, you you end up there. Um, but it, it's funny, 2014, so we're, we're, talking, we're talking 18 years after the Feeney case. Yes. Which in some ways is not very long, but then again, it is quite a long time in, in the minds of particularly younger people who are interested in these subjects. True. So... I want to I want to insert one thing very very quickly. One of the things that we're, we're consistently talking about is human beings um, practicing ri ritualistic vampirism. Mm -hmm. um, that does seem to be what we're what we're talking about. Um, now, I do think that there is certainly the potential uh, in some of these uh, almost Lovecraftian style uh, rituals involved that under uh, certain circumstances, comparatively rare circumstances, uh, you might be able to call yourself up an apex predator of, uh, of a supernatural variety. Well, you, you, you potentially could. 
And even if not a supernatural variety, just a a pet spread or of a human variety as well. It it certainly has the the hallmarks of attracting sociopathic tendency individuals. Yes. And, Uh um, you know, so that's sort of the background and the... um, the Feeney case is still unsolved, technically, yes. um, and uh, just a synopsis, there's there's plenty of information out there for anyone who wants more details. I remember very clearly, I was living in Springfield and, and uh, practicing law there. Um, when it happened, uh, Cheryl Feeney and her two children were murdered in their home while her husband was, who was a teacher, uh, was at a conference um, at Lake of the Ozarks. Um, and very quickly, he became the main suspect and was charged in the murders. Uh, in the course of all of this, it ended up that um, uh, coming out that he was involved in the Springfield vampire community. Um, some people discounted that some people took it to heart um and um ultimately uh some of the evidence at the crime scene would indicate uh more of a ritualistic nature of the murders um marks on the neck certain things written in blood etc um and um Ultimately, after a very in-depth long trial, um, you know, he was not found guilty, although the jury later was polled, and I'm going to be very candid, the jury was polled, and every single juror believed he was guilty, but that there was not enough physical evidence to convict him. Mm. So... um, you know, on one hand, you can say, as an attorney, you know, uh, on one hand, you can say, well, the jury didn't just become inflamed by their passions that they believed he was guilty and just convicted him uh, completely on circumstantial evidence. Um, on the other hand, they were, you know, to the last juror convinced that he was guilty. So in the end. Interesting. That now, in you know, regardless of of uh, ultimately how people feel about that, you know, and parsing that out, that verdict really flies in the face of the hysterical townspeople looking for vigilante justice, which is actually a rather positive reality. It it is. I mean, it's it's one of those. And, and to be perfectly honest, in, in at the moment. It was kind of surprising because there, there was it, it was a very emotionally heightened case, um, and a lot of people were kind of surprised that of the acquittal uh, because of that that mentality that that energy in the air almost like you said uh, pitchforks and flames almost um, and. Um, but I can tell you, and, and this, and this is in, in published as well um, in some of the sources that we reviewed, 
um, defense counsel, it, 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 it affected Sean uh, and he left the practice of law for a number of years afterwards and, mm-hmm. and uh, actually became a candy maker quite successfully. Um, yeah. But, um, and, and um, just from things I know, it, 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 it took an emotional toll on a lot of people who were involved in the case. Um, now, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting points. I'm just going off the notes that I have. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, some of the, some of the uh, loose connections uh, implied certainly by my notes that were loose um that that uh the suspect uh played a game called vampires of the masquerade mm-hmm. that um the prosecutor said that he took the vampire tank game to the extreme uh and then used it to assume the role of a killer and wiped out his family but then other other references um, say, for example, I've never seen the Vampire of the Masquerade players in the tunnels, but I've seen them in the city square. They aren't a cult. They are harmless. It's called LARPing, live action role play. It's like drama club for the kids even geekier than the ones in drama club. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing to really just is, is imply that uh, the vampiric connection is imagined. The idea that, you know, and so I'm, I'm and I'm, I'm unaffiliated, obviously, with this one way or the other. Uh, right. But the, the idea that, say, uh, there's a crime occurs and then we find out that uh, one of the suspects plays Magic the Gathering, so we assume that he's a wizard, that sort of thing. Right. right. Um, and, and, and there seem to be more more to it than just that as far as some some of the testimony um as to the depth of his involvement that kind of thing but uh in the end there there wasn't enough physical evidence to to for the jury to convict even though they believed he was responsible um Mm -hmm. and so that in itself as you said is, is quite interesting um and basically it's a it's a case that's just kind of lingered out there a cold case no other suspects have ever been identified um and so the sort of the notion of these ties just kind of i think faded in a lot of people's memory um but I think more than anything, it highlights that the culture was going on and, you know, maybe it was just LARPing. Maybe it was just, you know, a card game. Could there have been someone, whether, and I'm not saying Feeney or it could be someone else, could someone have used that environment for a darker purpose? Well, that yes. happens all the time. And there are other serial killers that have uh, taken on sort of a vampire king sort of motif as yes. well over time. 
So um, there was one down in Florida back in the 70s, and I can't remember who, uh, I can't remember his name now. Um, and uh, so those are always possibilities. But to just say, oh, none of this ever happened, you know, as far as the vampire culture, I think is a little naive. Correct. And I think that's, I think that's a, it's an important balance to, to essentially walk between the two, the two viewpoints or the two paths. Yeah. The, yeah. uh, you know, and it is there. There are there are elements even in just the the surface documentation that, regardless of of not 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 arriving at any specific conclusion as to who, you know, actually committed these crimes, that there were dark elements associated all the way around. Yes, yes, um, and. Uh... And I think it's one of those things that perhaps that 2014 article uh, kind of indirectly points to that you know, we don't want to acknowledge that anything like this could be in our midst. Mm -hmm. It is. It is uncomfortable. It's something that uh, I think is is an interesting tightrope to walk. Is the the monstrous othering as opposed to the self monster exactly exactly it's it's very uncomfortable to arrive at the conclusion that the the horrific could be staring back at us in the mirror exactly and i and i do think that is a recurring theme uh, with vampire lore through time However, the vampire is dressed and packaged. Yes, it, it is. And, and sometimes speaking to an othering and sometimes speaking to a self, um, what, is, what is interesting is that when, when you have, have so erased the, the monstrous from the other and then embrace what is in essence a a folklorically monstrous um, persona mm -hmm. but done so somewhat if not wholly blithe to the reality of one's own darkness exactly is there's some 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 difficult things there was there was an interesting this was actually a religion news blog.com um i believe article uh about a uh a young woman in attending drury university mm -hmm. who was approached by a uh, a vampire coven and again we need to note these are not vampire vampires these are individuals who are embracing the, the concept of vampires. Yes. Um, and uh, basically um, pulled her into this coven and uh, she uh, fully embraced it to the mm, uh, detriment of a variety of things and apparently including her grades. 
<laughs> well, and I, th I, th I think it's, you know, again, sort of that thrill of, of taboo and uh, acceptance by a group for not being completely conformist can be very seductive. And of course, again, it kind of goes back to that idea of, you know, seduction in one way or another often comes up in, in, in the lore. It does. And, and I think that, uh, you know, sort of a mm, counter argument that, that can be effectively made um, modern materialistic society is largely devoid of the esoteric, uh, devoid of the, the magical. And we, interestingly enough, even with the trappings of cultural religion, there, there is a uh, highly materialistic, highly consumer-driven and very mundane, everyone fits in a cubicle uh, everyone needs to check off the right boxes in order to get ahead. Everyone needs to conform in order to, uh, you know, apply for the, uh, uh, the nice life with the nice house in the nice neighborhood and the, the, the constrictive, the emotionally constrictive um, burden and, and sociological burden that comes along with the word nice we're all just have to be nice. And, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, <laughs> sometimes we don't want to be nice. And especially, and, and I think that there, there's a particular, in terms of vampiric cult ritual, there's a particular uh, allure for uh, adolescence in, in the sense that they, they've been forced to conform for so much of their lives and it is a juncture point at which you're, you're simply staring at additional conformity in the form of uh, good grades and good schools and good choices. And uh, I think, for, <laughs> yes. And, and some of that can be um, difficult and incredibly suffocating. The, the girl in the, uh, uh, the the related to Drury article um, was uh, was a hyper intelligent child prodigy who was starting college at age fifteen. That 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 may explain why she got pulled in. Yes, <laughs> yeah. and and certainly the the potential for for that allure. Um, but the other side of that is as understandable as it may be to rebel against a society in which uh, there's a high compulsion to place everyone in a, in a bland, comfortable box that, uh, the, the, you know, gives you the screaming memes by age 45. Um, <laughs> I, I say this as one on the outside because I never went in the box. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there, you, you mean there is a box? <laughs> what box? <laughs> um, the boxes. <laughs> Must realize there is no spoon. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> um, but along with that is that the, the 
as, as understandable as that allure is, there is no guarantee that the, uh, you know, however you want to cut it, the potential coven awaiting you uh, has, uh, first of all, has their head screwed on properly. And second of all, has the, uh, uh, the new initiate's best interest at heart. Exactly. Exactly. And which, of course, is not unique just to this situation. It, it happens in a lot. I mean, that's why it's called hazing. Um, yeah. Yes, but, um, that's, I mean, that's very, very true. Um, but, um, oh, I want to jump gears just a little bit and talk uh, because people may be thinking, oh, this is just, you know, the only vampire connection with the Ozarks just is this more recent stuff that comes out of pop culture and all of this. Yeah. Um, but um, there is a very interesting uh, older account of the Elvins uh, vampire, potentially. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, up in uh, St. Francois County, um and um early 1900s if i recall yes turn of the century yeah um which i i find kind of and kind of unusual because of course that there there was a surge of um vampire scares um in new england in the early 1800s yes Um, which the sociological reasons for that, you know, they're, they're still trying to figure out why that happened. But then, you know, this is a hundred years later. They've uh, run out of witches. They run out of witches. <laughs> Very true. Um, and, you know, this is mining country, uh, pretty rural. Um, and, uh, now, and, and we do have to throw in that, and you know, albino comes into play too, which is one of our our, our favorite foils uh, for urban legends. Is that you know there has to be an axe or an albino one or both. <laughs> Sadly, in this case, we do have an albino, but he did not have a farm. It's true. He didn't have a farm. <laughs> I don't think he had an axe, although he might have had a, a miner's pick. <laughs> Um, but it's associated with Gibson Cemetery. Um, yes. The grave that, and it, it's kind of interesting because usually, you know, when you're reading these cemetery tales of, of something odd like this, it's a witch's grave. You know, there, um, if every witch, if there was a witch for every witch's grave tale, um, there would have been an awful a lot, lot of witches. Um, but this is a, a vampire grave. It is. It is. And, and no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I I finished my thought. Oh, it, it's you know the the Elvins vampire grave, uh, Elvins, Missouri, which was uh, reincorporated with a number of small town in immediate area now Park Hills, Missouri, and Saint Francois Mining, uh, Saint Francois County. Uh, not very far from Farmington, uh, so very 
interesting lore throughout the, of course, we're not very far from the Piedmont, uh, right. not very far from Leeper. Lots of, lots of civil war uh, history there in the Eastern Ozarks, south of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And the, the, mm, the, the folkloric aspect of it, there's definitely, so I think yin and yang, there's very, very uh, opposing, opposing forces, certainly within the, the folklore mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, a, interestingly enough, a, a, a Eastern European immigrant, uh, a Hungarian man who apparently was an albino, yes. uh, who worked as a miner. He apparently really was an albino in this instance. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, uh, um, I'm, I'm, at this juncture, I'm assuming that he was not the inspiration for Minor 49er in uh, Scooby-Doo, 1969. <laughs> Uh, classic original Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Although there was an albino in in the Ozark Witch episode. Interesting. He he, Interesting. he he pushed the canoe. He pushed the well the flatboat through the swamp. <laughs> I I really need to revisit this episode. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, you, you so, will not recognize the Ozarks in it, but fair. <laughs> but there is is more albino, of a, uh, basically Pullman on yes. the boat. So you know, you, you take your you take your 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 intersections with reality where you can get them. And <laughs> basically, uh, is described as cruel or evil. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of mysterious childhood deaths that mm-hmm. take place, and then the towns be, and then uh, the 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 miner doesn't go out during the day. He is only out and about during the night, and then the townspeople rise up and murder him, and then there are no more mysterious childhood deaths. So, simple problem, simple solution. So, so in this case, we really do have the village mob with the pitchforks. and At least according to the legend. And yeah. now, um, and then they, they bury him in, um, in the Gibson Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And I find this interesting. That there's, there's a couple of somewhat um, opposing references online. One say that they buried him surrounded by the graves of the children who had died. Uh, another one says that simply that there are a number, perhaps a, a per capita concerning number of uh, childhood, ch- children's graves within the cemetery. The cemetery has a lead, apparently um, over 300 graves in it, which is pretty substantial for a rural cem- small rural cemetery. Right. And so uh, the, the surrounded by seems a little bit of uh, perhaps a push. I haven't actually been to go look and document. Me either. So I don't know. I can't, I don't know the layout of the graves. Now, another interesting little tidbit is right in Park Hills as well. There is a smallpox cemetery, Mm. um, which is called the smallpox cemetery. That's what it's even called. from smallpox uh, epidemics 
including up into the early 1900s. So to be perfectly honest, my guess is a lot of these child deaths were probably related to smallpox or other epidemics. Yes. Now the, and I think that it's, it's very interesting to approach this, this entire situation from very open mind, entertaining, highly opposing conclusions. I do too. Um, the, and, and, you know, I'm going to reference the, uh, the cemetery in Newtonia. There's a, okay. there's a handful of, uh, of uh, graves in Newtonia, which have uh, the, the wrought iron fence enclosures. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I think there's, there's a variety of things that those enclosures denote, um, the, the least of which during the time of their construction was it's going to keep them in. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, um, of course, there's various lore about different substances, you know, that, you know, un- unclean spirits or, you know, abominations can't cross this or that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and actually, some, some of that actually does come out of that there, there in certain places became tradition to cover uh, graves with a almost a cage out of iron uh, wrought iron usually um, to deter grave robbers yes so you know um, there, there can be various assumptions or conclusions to be made very very true now there is a uh, a fenced uh grave apparently at gibson cemetery and the, the the presumption is that it is the the hungarian minor vampire and it is the vampire's grave the if, if i recall correctly there's a there is a stone in i think so i um, think so which seems uh, a, a little bit of an extra effort for for someone who was allegedly murdered for for killing the children, unless the either a stone or to you know again sometimes you know sometimes um, society will put the sign up to you know to point to you know don't be like that don't do that just. Mm-hmm kind of in the same vein of when they you know we used to go out and have picnics and watch hangings on public hey, stairs, yes. you know this is true historical marker is historical marker regardless um and, and then the the now the 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 other side of this is of course it's very easy to jump to the conclusion that uh uh the the, the people of Elvins were uh, paranoid, backwards, and xenophobic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, something bad was happening to the kids, completely unrelated to this poor guy. And then he's, he's the one who pays for it. Now, vampirism aside, uh, simply because one is from, you know, simply because one is a Hungarian minor and simply because one is an albino, uh, does not somehow magically 
um, preclude one from the capacity to do bad things. That, that's true, you know, but it is rather interesting that the, the, the legend is vampire versus, you know, he just, you know, the, the stock, um, he's out there with, with a hatchet or something just killing people. Um, yeah, the, the 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 summer caretaker version of urban legends, you know, that you get so often is that you know, just out killing kids at summer camp or whatever, um, you know. So whether it's because he was Hungarian or the albinoism or uh, something made people come up with vampire, though it did. Now I'm gonna play devil's advocate again on this okay. and let's say something darkly mischievous was afoot mm -hmm. uh, the implication is the children were dying but were dying in mysterious ways right uh, which would imply that there was not a a way to trace the deaths back to a suspect true or you know sometimes you know um unusual bleeding or something you know or during decomposition you know particularly uh yes if there was a delay you know in in those days if there was a delay in in burial sometimes just the natural processes uh that the body goes through often would lead to accusations of vampirism um, yeah you know blood cooling around the mouth um uh, gums receding so let's you know uh, if you're looking at someone as a vampire they have fangs and things like this but it could be construed on you know bodies that they were a victim as well yes now and then and and i think that there, there's the capacity to look at it two different ways uh, simultaneously one being that uh individuals experiencing severe grief um simply you know beginning to engage in this sort of block think yeah that something's wrong something's wrong looking for an explanation um individuals can become very irrational uh, mm -hmm. during the grief process for a variety of, of reasons this is very well documented and uh and looking right, for like the the salem witch trials yes uh, looking for not just a scapegoat. I think it's important to understand that in some of these situations, it's not simply looking for a scapegoat. It's looking for meaning. The idea that that death is not simply Random. capricious, meaningless. There had to have been a reason. Uh, there had to have been a purpose. Right. And perhaps that purpose was nefarious, at which point then justice needs to be served. Very true. Uh, these are these are parts of the human psyche. Now, the other side, the, the flip to that is that in so many cases, particularly in mountain culture, but not limited to mountain culture, death was not an anomaly. And these were individuals who were accustomed to seeing death. They were accustomed to to uh, uh, to infant and childhood mortality. Mm -hmm. uh, these these were not strangers to tragedy. Uh, simply because of the era and the, the region. And so there is the possibility that with this certain series of deaths, 
that there was a pattern being recognized that was somehow genuinely different. That's, and, and that's entirely possible, you know, that, that really is. We, we may wanna jump over now to our, uh, talk a little bit about indigenous uh, lore. In the yes, I think that'd be a great place to, uh, to conclude on this. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm very excited and, and rather fascinated uh, by this. Of course, we are going to, you know, the, there's, there's elements that definitely touch on, uh, on Cherokee witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And then you found uh, a, you found a new monster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, 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 the Seminole, um, Owl Man, the Stikini. Yeah. And, um, and of course the Seminoles, they originally were in Florida, but they were relocated, uh, many of them to, uh, Oklahoma, including areas that are, you know, in the Ozarks. Um, and certainly, uh, it seems that, uh, their lore on this may have affected other tribes in the area as well. Yes. Uh, and this vampiric creature has a entirely different sort of uh, origin story than uh, European idea of vampirism being, you know, sort of, you know, the undead being made by another undead. Uh, it comes out of witchcraft and witches basically uh, using black magic and ultimately the sort of the, the cost, the karmic cost is you become this vampiric almost wraith thing. Yes, and it is a, it's, it's pretty terrifying actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It is pretty ridiculously terrifying. Um, more terrifying than a lot of better known uh, in individuals. They they appear to be uh, consistently female. Yes. And it is it is uh, to me interesting. It, it seems to be isolated to uh, female seminal witches who within other um, power structures don't have uh, authority. Right, sort of that solitary practitioner. In, but that, that said, they, they, at least one of the references uh, refers to the stikini in plural. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, uh, this, uh, during the, the Florida Seminole War, a reference in 1835, uh, women, uh, Seminoles refusing to, uh, be moved by, uh, uh, federal troops and, uh, then cursing the troops. And then, uh, the, the morning after the, the curse, uh, a young soldier is found dead in his bed, and an investigation concluded that the man's heart had been removed. That that'll do it. It will. <laughs> um, and uh, 
then a soldier uh, named Joseph Sprague abandoned his post. Essentially, the the, the whole company gets the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Uh, as a uh, missing heart is uh, you know capable of doing. Um, <laughs> Sprague uh, abandons his post, flees through the forest at dusk, and, quote, he sees a group of Seminole women who had cursed the soldiers, and he watches in horror as they kneel, chant, expel their internal organs from their mouths, and one by one take on the form of owls and fly off into the night. That, that again, that would be enough to make me want to run off the post, yeah. That uh, and then, according to the story, Sprague hurries back to Fort Brooke, um, and, and ultimately finds 109 of his fellow soldiers, the rest of the post, uh, dead in their beds with their hearts removed. It's brutal. Yes, it is. Um, the the suggestion uh, or the the reference. And I do find this interesting that the, according to this reference, which is uh, from Tripping on Legends, uh, the, the myth or the mythology surrounding the Dade Massacre, that uh, the Stakini call upon a goddess named She Who Walks the Circle. And uh, it began that, that this goddess originally began as a mortal, uh, but abused her powers and became a cursed deity. Mm -hmm. And I also find it, it interesting that there's, there's certainly a, a, an almost cross-reference to harpies mm -hmm. in this. There are other um, uh, legends that, that have similar tones that, uh, but one of the things that actually jumps to mind and, and for people who if you didn't catch it uh the stakini vomit out their internal organs onto the ground before turning into owls and then when they come back to their innards uh they eat them and then mm -hmm. transform back into into humans a, a little different transformation than werewolves it is and the, uh, the idea that their internal organs, they hide somewhere. Mm -hmm. Now there is a, to me, there's a, a unique reference there to selkies, selkies coming out on land, hiding their seal skins. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that, that is true. And it, it is interesting that, you know, that uh, it's um, this, the, the deity is sort of akin to being undead, but was once human was once human and the um the the other thing that it, to me is striking and this is more on a corporeal realm but uh owls uh ingest their prey whole and then vomit them back up for their children or their 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 hatchlings yes that that is true that is true so i can see you know if 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 the creature's doing this, the comparison with owls, even if they were not literally changing. Um, and, you know, um, there is in Oklahoma, uh, just lore with a lot of the native tribes about owls 
particularly seen during the day that it's bad luck if you see an owl during the day um which makes you wonder if it kind of goes back to this this lore it it does i i something i i'm consistently intrigued by uh that that it's 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 a textural interpretation of supernatural beings in mm-hmm. in Native American lore that I really like in the sense that it is so ridiculously confusing for somebody like me who's you know of European settlement descent. True. Uh, that that it is. You know, even and, and I would I would say that uh, you know, fifteen hundred years of uh, dogmatic European Catholicism certainly has uh, you know its its talons into the into the psyche, and that that Catholicism certainly uh, in you know having been inherit you know having inherited a lot of the 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 structure and cubes and grids of the Roman Empire, the idea that everything fits into a, a pre-specified box. <laughs> with uh, with uh, you know post-Renaissance or you know early modern era post-Renaissance to post-Renaissance creatures of European folklore. So almost everything got at least domesticated enough to stick inside a box. True, that's a good way of putting that. Uh, and, and and Native American lore does not, and so you're you're presented with this dizzying array of things which do not fit in boxes, and exactly, or at least the same boxes. <laughs> yes, um, and, and that's you know it's in you know dealing with, for example, Cherokee witchcraft is it's okay to kill a witch because a witch isn't a human being, but right. a witch looks like a human being and. I had an aunt once who was a witch, uh, and she's dead. And we're going to go visit her grave, but nobody else wants to visit her grave. I am referencing a book, guys. I'm not just going off the seat of my pants. Um, a, a very excellent anthropological work. Um, but the idea that, but if you if you killed a witch, um, you didn't kill a human being, but they look like a human being, they act like a human being. And I talked to one, and it was a human being, but when it's a witch, it's not. Yeah. And a European mindset says, well, pick one. And a, a more traditional, um, and I think realistically, a more sophisticated uh, mindset says, no, I don't have to because they don't either. Exactly. And, and if you go back further in time in European traditions, there was more of that mindset. Yes, um, I, I, to me, a, a really powerful turning point, probably a sad turning point in which the, uh, uh, the great folkloric beasts and beings of, uh, of Europe got placed in a zoo is the, the a mid 19th century publication of a compendium of, of fairies in which uh, all of your documentable Norse, Germanic, Irish, Anglo-Saxon, um, and Celtic um, 
fairies essentially is it a is it a pixie is it a is it a is it a fairy is it an elf is it a goblin is it a sprite is it a brownie is it a dwarf is it a troll um suddenly all got categorized in this highly modern um mid 19th century tome that really reflects the um you know, 50 years approximately after unification of Great Britain, and we are the empire, uh, and even our, uh, even our fairies have to conform within their proper cubicle boxes, and you, you just have this, um, this sense that everything has to fit. Of course, that had been, you know, going on for quite some time, and, and I think you, you might even argue that uh, things like the, um, oh, the, the Latin term escapes me, but you have the book, the Maleficarum. I'm going to get it wrong. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, I'm too tired to. Yes, yes. The uh, uh, the 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 um, Holy Roman Empire's book on how to hunt witches. Yes. Uh, creating this now within the mindset, there is a structure uh, in, in which to place things. Yeah. And, they're they're yeah. this and they're that <laughs> and oh one of the one of the mild less milder dark sides of reconquista but uh, it's very good <laughs> and I, I think it's but i think it's very powerful and it, for to, to be able to sort of begin the process of resetting our expectation and something that when individuals do experience for example, the paranormal or the the esoteric or the weird, simply that they're they're having an experience that it, it's particularly unsettling because it doesn't fit in the box. True, very true, and and this you know this certainly this certainly happens with these kind of creatures in indigenous lore, um, and. You know, just sitting here thinking, it makes me think that, you know, we, we think of a vampire of drinking blood, you know, even the, you know, the fangs in the neck or whatever, or, or whatever, but, and, and that's brutal, but, you know, ripping out the heart and ostensibly ingesting it. Um, yes. That's a little more brutal. It, it is, and regardless, I I don't know if I like the idea. So, in in the hypothetical sense, I like the idea of the stakini because it's it's exciting, it's esoteric, it's devastating. Uh, I like the idea of things that we don't understand going bump in the night. So let's just respect those things. On the other yeah. hand, if the stakini was after me, all of a sudden I'd be like, "Whoa, time out! You need to be mythical." Yeah, that that's very true. Please go turn into an owl. Yes. <laughs> turn but back into an hand, owl. I, you know, it, it makes sense why, you know, okay, maybe you don't want to see an owl during the day. <laughs> it it definitely and especially I think growing up with those uh, those motifs. Now in the idea that that based on our uh, perhaps childhood and growing up experiences, our, our idea of what initiates revulsion 
can really be shaped by that. You look at, uh, yeah. you know, the, you know, so for example, me growing up, I, I, I love owls. Um, I do too, though, I, yeah. I, I think they're incredibly beautiful, majestic creatures. I'm always excited when I get to see them. I enjoy hearing them. Um, I actually have a number of owl art inspired pieces around the house, so mm. on and so forth. And I just think that they're these majestic birds uh, that, are, that, are, that are very cool. There are, of course, many reports of people of a different heritage responding with fear or revulsion uh, yeah. at, the, at the hearing of an owl or the, the sighting of an owl, particularly an owl out of place in the daylight, that sort of thing. Right. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't have that. Uh, however, I did grow up inert within a, a Judeo-Christian structure. And, uh, you know, I have a very immediate visceral response to almost any time that I see a snake. So there you go. <laughs> Throw that out there. We can't, we can't escape what we were raised in. <laughs> I don't, at, at least um, uh, it, it, it exists as our subconscious reality. It does. It does affect things, um, but but again, um, uh, maybe I'll take the European va vampire if I have to choose. You know? <laughs> <laughs> as long as they don't sparkle, I'm good. Yeah, same here. <laughs> that might be a good place to to end tonight. The close up for tonight. We appreciate everyone. Please like, share, subscribe, and um, you know, share your comments, share your ideas, share your thoughts. If you've experienced a vampire, uh, you may be entitled to compensation, but not from us. <laughs> no, but we would like to hear the story. <laughs> yes, we would. <laughs> so, everyone, have a good week, and we'll be back next Wednesday. Absolutely. Thank you all. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone.